when we think about individuals who have uh, reached the height of their work or their craft, uh, whether it's in sports or art or music, certain people might come into our minds in the field of sports, like basketball, perhaps uh, Steph Curry, uh, baseball, Nolan Ryan, Ted Williams, maybe come to mind. Uh, in music, people who have mastered voice and, and pitch, like Whitney Houston might surface, or an instrument uh, like the cello, uh, Yo-Yo Ma. In art, we might think of Rembrandt or Picasso. In each of these cases, you have individuals who, who, who represent kind of excellence in their craft and in, in their work. I love listening to, to the cello. It's my favorite instrument that along with the classical guitar for reading and for studying. So I've listened to a lot of the cello, but I know no matter how much I listen to it or I were to watch Yo-Yo Ma or I were to try and pick up the cello and become a musician, I'm simply not likely going to reach that level of, of excellence. Thankfully, the Lord does not judge us or view us based on those kinds of abilities. But what about godliness? What about godliness? The Scripture gives us numerous pictures, examples, patterns, portraits of lives of, of holiness. And those are to serve as patterns for, for our lives. Uh, we've been considering a series in the Sunday School uh, Hour on the holiness of God. We think of, of Peter's words in 1 Peter 1, a book that's being preached through in the evening uh, services where Peter quotes from Levit- Leviticus, 19, uh, Levit- Leviticus chapter 11. Uh, as he who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. As it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, as we consider a portrait this morning, a picture of godliness from Psalm 112, preparing for next week a new series in the book of, of Daniel that I'm very much looking forward to. But this morning, uh, Psalm 12 The question is, how can we rightly, legitimately pray and sing this psalm and live out this psalm knowing that while it was meant for you and me, intended for you and me to see ourselves in it, we know we don't measure up. This is a companion to Psalm 111 that we looked at two weeks ago that focused on the works, the great works of the Lord and His great character. And now this psalm is considering what does a, what does a reflection of, of God look like? Now it's the picture of a godly person. The, the great works and character of God, now a godly person. And so it's to the, the question of how can we with integrity and legitimately pray this psalm uh, that we turn to Psalm 112. There's at times this overwhelming ca- uh, gap or chasm between the ideal picture of godliness and the reality of, of our lives. So Psalm 112. Listen now to God's Word. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in His house, and His righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. 
And he's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. A few years back, a professor at Duke Divinity School named Lauren Winner, she wrote about how difficult it has been for her over the years to sing and pray the Psalter, the book of Psalms. Now, she's very candid and open in her description. She says this, I must admit, I have never much liked the Psalms. They have never prayed easy to me. Now, she's aware, I believe, just how shocking that might be to Christian ears. So she says, It is, of course, absurd to offer this sort of simplistic assessment. What does it matter whether I like the Psalter or not? And how is it possible that I could find the Psalms dull? Psalms, which, after all, are both time-tested poetry and also the prayer book of the Jewish people, which is to say, among other things, the prayer book of Jesus. But in fact, I have found them dull for many years, and mostly an occasion for wool gathering. Now you might be wondering, what is wool gathering? She's using a bit of an archaic term there. I looked it up. I had to look it up. It means to indulge in aimless thoughts or daydreams. What she's saying is that when she reads the Psalms, she's easily distracted. She daydreams. Her her eyes kind of glaze over often. Now, I don't know what your experience has been in hearing the Psalms and interacting with the Psalms, praying the Psalms. I wouldn't say what she expresses has been my experience, but I will say it has been difficult over the years to sing or to pray certain Psalms. To put yourself in the shoes or the mindset of the psalmist. The psalms are the prayer and songbook of God's people, and they're intended, among other things, for you and I to see ourselves in them. So when we look at a psalm like 112, we're to see ourselves as that blessed man or blessed woman who fears the Lord in verse 1. We're to see ourselves as, as those whose light dawns in darkness, as the upright In verse 4, we who deal generously and are just. In verse 5, who are righteous and not moved. Who are not afraid, but we trust in the Lord. Verse 7, whose righteousness endures forever. Verse 9, what a a wonderful kind of idyllic picture of a godly, holy person. It's a lot easier just to read and to study this psalm than to see yourself in it. I'm much more inclined to relate to other psalms, like Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Or Psalm 103, so well known. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits, who forgives your iniquity, heals, who redeems your life from the pit. But to see myself 
as that righteous man or righteous woman. That's not so natural. Uh, Some call this Psalm 112, and others like it, Psalms of Innocence. Right? This person is not sinless, but they are righteous. The righteous will not be moved. Blessed, happy, joyful is the man who fears the Lord. We're to see ourselves as those who fear the Lord and therefore are blessed. In contrast to the other people mentioned in the last verse, uh, the wicked who perish. And so challenging questions come to my mind. Can I see myself as that godly man or that godly woman? Am I able to pray this? Am I able to sing these words with integrity? As a young person, a teenager, as my own faith was coming more and more uh, alive, one particular uh, year, our youth group went on a retreat, and uh, what was required actually to go on this retreat was to memorize and recite before our youth group, our youth director, Psalm 15. I can still remember going through that process. I passed, I went on the retreat. Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent or dwell on your holy hill? Who can enter the presence of the Lord? Who can come into His sanctuary? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Blamelessly. Righteously. Well, as a young person with my growing faith, there was also a growing awareness of the reality of sin. Selfish ambition, lust, impatience. We can begin to see these things kind of lurking around every corner. That sense of spiritual unworthiness can make it hard to pray and sing and see ourselves as the godly one here in Psalm 112. Listen to Psalm 18. We heard this portion read earlier that we recited together. Psalm 18. 20 to 24. The Lord dealt with me according uh, to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him. I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness according to the cleanness of my hands in His sight. How do we pray these words with integrity, given the reality of sin? Every week we have a time of confession because of uh, the daily reality, the weekly reality of our own uh, sin. One Christian tradition teaches their people to pray every morning and every evening. Lord, I confess I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. It seems to me every legitimate Christian tradition has a way of driving people to Paul's words in Romans 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We learned in 1 John, in our series there in 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Sin is an inevitability kind of like the the fall season. It's not a matter of if the leaves will fall. It's when. 
Is anybody else presented with that challenge? I'm still working on the best way to deal with the leaves. Truly. On the one hand, one might be tempted to just throw in the towel. Just let the leaves fall. Let them accumulate. Ignore the reality of sin. So I'm not the man or the woman of Psalm 112. I'm not so gracious or righteous. I don't lend generously. My heart is not without fear. Shame could take over. I'm just overwhelmed. There is something wrong with me. I don't measure up, no matter how uh, powerful my resolve. On the other hand, you could look at the falling of the leaves, the reality of sin, as kind of a do-it-yourself, 24-7 cleanup project. We have a neighbor about a quarter mile up our road whose property is as clean as any I have ever seen. At the height of the fall season, we could go there now. We won't. But we could go there now, and he would probably only have four or five leaves on all his property. But he's out there constantly. Mowing, raking, removing. I don't know if he sleeps or eats. But the Christian life is not a sort of cleanup project, a self-improvement project. There's something dangerous in reading a psalm like this and thinking to ourselves, I actually do measure up. I think I do measure up. It's, it's far too easy to define the acceptable level of righteousness as the level at which I live or you live. So how do we sing and pray this psalm rightly, sincerely? Can we? Well, I'm led at this point to, to preach just for a moment about preaching. Because in any legitimate homiletics preaching class, uh, you're going to be taught that if the Lord Jesus Christ is not brought to bear upon the text, yes, the Old Testament text, yes, the Psalms, something for sure is missing. We're not going to rightly understand or apply the word. Remember what Jesus taught his disciples in Luke 24. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. When we come to the Psalms, we're coming not first to the song or prayer book of the people of God. We're coming to the prayer book of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the German Lutheran pastor who was martyred under Nazi Germany, wrote a small devotional book on the Psalms. And it's called The Prayer Book of the Bible. And in one of the chapters, he speaks about these, uh, quote-unquote, Psalms of Innocence. And I think he gives us a key. He's following others in the Christian tradition from St. Augustine to John Calvin and others. This is what he says. Before the Psalms are the prayer book of the people of God, they are first and foremost the prayers of and the prayers about Jesus Christ. Jesus' voice is the one we hear when we read the Psalms. Israel's greatest king, King David, wrote more Psalms than than any other contributor. And great David's greater son, greater heir, takes the Psalms himself onto his own lips. He makes them his own. He, he's orienting the Psalms to himself. 
Uh, there's versions and adaptations of, of Psalms like 112 that pluralize the singular references, especially when liturgically a group is praying or reciting, singing it uh, together, perhaps appropriate. Uh, Blessed are we who fear the Lord. Our offspring will be mighty in the land. We have distributed uh, freely. But, but I want us to listen to parts of this psalm as I read it in another translation. Peter Levy's translation, which has the original Hebrew singular forms. And consider the words as being first on the lips of our Savior Jesus Christ and about Christ. Praise God. I bless the man who fears God, who has pleasure in his law. His seed will be mighty on the earth. His house will have riches and precious things. And his justice will continue forever. The good man is decent and generous. He will never be shifted. The good man will be remembered forever. His heart is strong and he trusts God. His heart is fixed. He is not afraid. He scattered his goods and gave to the destitute. His head shall be gloriously lifted up. The wicked man shall see it and be sorry. The wicked man's wishes will come to nothing. Do we see our Lord Jesus in these words. According to Bonhoeffer, this is a psalm that belongs to and is about Christ Jesus. Before it belongs to you or me, it's about Him. So Jesus is the man who fears God, who takes pleasure in His law. Jesus is the man whose justice is going to endure forever. Jesus is the man whose heart is strong, who trusts God, who is not afraid. Jesus is the one who saw the shame of His persecutors when he rose from the dead and triumphed over his enemies, leading captives and giving gifts to men. Jesus is the one whose head is lifted up, exalted and glorified at the right hand of our Heavenly Father. But Bonhoeffer wants us to see something else. Because insofar as this Psalm 112 is about Jesus, it is also, and because of that, about you and me. Because through our baptism into the death of Christ, our baptism into the resurrection of Christ, we are united to Him. We are in Him and He is in us. So everything our Savior has done, who He is, belongs to us. Bonhoeffer says, It is characteristic of the faith of the Christian that through God's grace and the merit of Christ, he or she has become entirely justified without guilt in God's sight so that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ. And it is characteristic of the prayer of the Christian to hold fast to this justification and innocence which has come to him or her appealing to God's word and thanking God for it. So he says, Bonhoeffer, not only are we permitted, but we are directly obligated to pray with all humiliation and certainty these kinds of psalms. He says, I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. Bonhoeffer quoting from Psalm 18. And then he says, with such a prayer, we stand at the center of the New Testament in the community of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, if your faith life and faith journey is anything like mine, 
You might look around at the lives of others, fellow saints, those who have gone before, those who appear to be walking holy lives, faithful, perhaps the psalmist here of 112. And it may appear like this ideal that we simply cannot measure up to. The life that your church tradition or theological tradition expects of you may seem impossible to embody. Our our conscience accuses us of not measuring up. Others remind us that we're not measuring up. Other things like in school, our GPA reminds us we're not measuring up. Our body image may tell us we're not good enough. Our struggles communicate a falling short. How can we possibly say with the psalmist, happy, blessed are they who fear the Lord and think this is about me. This is about us. But if Bonhoeffer's right, we're not just permitted, we are commanded to pray and sing it. Because it's not about our spiritual prowess, but because Christ has made us one with Him. We sing it by command in order that we would see, yes, our sin, but then past our spiritual weakness to Christ's spiritual greatness. We sing it in order to be reminded that He has spoken and His word is a word of promise that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ. We're not to give our conscience the last word. He has the last word. Think of those last uh, final words in, in 1 Corinthians 1. It is because of God that you are in Christ who has become for us or to us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. And so as we read and we see uh, this psalm and pray this psalm, we are seeing and are to see beyond our own weakness and sin to Christ. He is the godly one. The godly one in whom we have redemption and we have forgiveness and we have the gift of the Spirit to cause us by His grace to grow us more and more in His likeness. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how we thank You that there is one who is truly the godly one the godly man, the one who lived faithfully, sinlessly, in obedience, and the man upon the cross who took our sin upon Himself, who has granted to us the Spirit to give us new spiritual life, new desire to walk faithfully after You. Oh Lord, we pray uh, that that as we reflect on this psalm, as we pray this psalm, that we would see Jesus Christ and that You would indeed conform us to His likeness, that the characteristics that we see would be more and more a part of our very heart, a part of our lives, and that You would cause us to flourish and bear much fruit. We thank You, Lord, for the firm foundation that we have uh, in Christ this one who is gracious and merciful, this one who is righteous. And we pray You would form us not only as members of the body, but together as Your people, as a community that seeks to worship You, 
to encourage and help one another, Lord, in this faith journey. We praise You for it. For all the blessings that come from it. Continue, O Lord, to nourish us as Your people as we sing praise unto You and as You feed us at the table, the table of our, our King and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen.